So um, welcome. My name is Jeff Myron. Uh, amongst other things, I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. I also teach economics in the Northeast. Um, and I'm the organizer of <laughs> I'm the organizer of the conference. So I want to first thank you for coming, um, give you a very quick explanation of what uh, this is about and what the plans are, um, and then we'll get started with the first panel. So um, my goal in this is the very first uh, occurrence of this conference. It'll be the very first volume of the publication that will come from it. My goal in sort of pitching it to Cato about two years ago was my view that it would be nice to get more talented economists, other social scientists, to think more directly about sort of important public policy issues. Obviously, lots of economists think a lot about public policy, but there's also a lot of talented economists who tend to focus on things that are at least a half step away from really being about policy questions. And my view is that it would be nice to get more of them to engage more directly. So this year's conference is a perfect example. We have a paper that looks at the effects of subsidizing mortgage modifications on unemployment. We have papers that look at whether government intellectual property production okay, actually helps promote uh, technological innovation, uh, and so on. So the kinds of people who will be giving papers are people like the ones in this room. The kinds of papers will be roughly similar okay, to the ones in this room. In comparison to other somewhat uh, related sort of activities, this one is not going to focus solely on macro, so it will be different than Brookings or the macro annual. And I think it will be more explicitly about public policy. There's going to be one conference per year, at least for the foreseeable future, four to five papers per conference. There will be a hard copy available in approximately six months. Things will also be available sooner than that, I hope, um, on the web, available online in the standard ways. Um, so that's a general idea. I'm of course, always happy to hear ideas and suggestions for paper topics, for authors, uh, for other people who might be interested. Uh, and I'm interested to hear your comments on things that you thought were done well, things you thought were done badly, things that uh, we might want to consider doing differently. Okay. So the first paper today is by, um, sorry, get my, you can tell it's the first time I've done it. First paper today is by Michaeli Boldrin, David Levine, Juan Correa, and Carmen Ornaghi uh, on the topic of competition and innovation. Michaeli? 20 minutes, right? Uh, yeah, 20 to 30 minutes for authors, 20 for discussants, and then the remainder for Q&A. We have asked for that to be turned off, but. Ah, uh, you have asked, so I don't have to ask it again. <laughs> uh, all right. so. Thanks for the invitation and, uh, and for the initiative, and uh, hopefully this will be somewhat interesting. Uh, let's see if I manage to open the PDF file. It, is, it says it is. All right, there it is. Now let me see here. I think we need to turn off some lights, otherwise the screen is not visible. We have to turn off those lights, right? Okay, yeah, good. All right, so this is... Uh, Joint work with uh, Juan Correa, who's sitting there on the right of Sam Cortum, and Carmen Ornaghi is on the left, and David, who apologizes, but is not here. Um, I will be brief, and so in order to stimulate discussion, uh, I will also be really stark in presenting the things. We've done three things in the paper that you have in your hand. It's still a first draft. Uh, uh, 
Look forward to comments, especially criticism, and make it better for the final version. We have tried to summarize the underlying economic theories uh, behind the policy positions. Uh, then we have tried to see what the predictions of the two theories are, uh, and both at an informal, non-statistical level, using what you would call case studies or historical facts and so on, and also existing literature. There is quite a bit of literature on this. Less than one would like to have, but there is quite a bit of literature. And then we try to do our own contribution in terms of statistical analysis of data and hypothesis testing that I will get to the end. Um, in some sense, in the policy debate, uh, the positions are not as starkly opposed as I put there on this first slide, in the sense that there's a lot of uh, technical detail, nuances, and, and practical aspect that one can see in the intellectual product. Oh, they just, <laughs> they just tricked us. Uh, and that, that, that people involved in the intellectual property debate it's a lot of technical aspect, and people tend to get into the technical aspect very quickly, claiming that if you take a very stark position, such as the one that David and I took a while ago, and then other people are now taking, uh, and I think also maybe our younger quote, or maybe not, let's not get them involved in that, uh, is, 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 uh, is simplifying the problem too much. But at the very end, from a theoretical or economic point of view, it is a fact that there are two very stark views two very stark views of, uh, uh, of the innovation process. And one leads to the conclusion that intellectual property, in the sense of patents and copyright, that is, in the sense of attributing a temporary but long and substantially long monopoly power to the person or firm, the first claims through the uh, uh, established procedure to have invented something. Uh, or to have created something, and then allowing this person to, uh, or firm to keep this monopoly power for a bunch of years. In the case of copyright, as everybody knows, it's become near infinity. In the case of patent, it's a much shorter, 20 to 30, depending on extension and so on. For a while, is essential for innovation. That is, if you don't have that, if you don't have that legally enforced and guaranteed and provided monopoly power, you will see little or no good innovation, serious innovation, valuable innovation. That is the opposite strand that says, well, no, if uh, actually only if you have competition in the sense of free entry uh, and uh, an imitation being allowed and not legally uh, prevented, only if you have those two conditions, which are pretty much blocked instead by the intellectual property system, uh, then you will have innovation to the, ex to the extent you prevent free entry and you block or, or, or prohibit uh, imitation of invention and innovation, then innovation will come to a hand. So those are pretty extreme views, strictly opposite, okay? And somehow we've set up the paper like that, even if understandably um, in, in the actual day-by-day uh, -day policy, there's a lot of stuff in the middle and there's a lot of compromises and so on. And again, in order to make clear what the two underlying theories are, uh, I invented two names. Now, it's, they're not completely invented. One is going to be called Bertrand. The other is going to be called Marshall. The two poor guys, well, they're long dead, so they won't complain too much for me abusing their last names. And they're not fully responsible for the whole thing. But it is, I think, defendable that the basic ideas, the basic analytic tools that are used uh, by the two opposite uh, points of view 
can be attributed respectively, one to Bertrand and the other to Marshall, or maybe to Edgeworth. But Marshall wrote it much more extensively and clearly. So the Bertrand view, as everybody remembers, is that in certain situations under competition, uh, Bertrand says firms, competitive firms, are going to price at marginal cost. Um, and that will determine, that's the good thing about, uh, about competition. Now, if you price at marginal cost something, such as an invention, a new product, or the machinery that embodies a new technology or, or whatnot, if you price that at margin, or marginal variable cost, variable yet is key, um, such a thing, then you will never be able to support whatever and, and repay whatever fixed cost was behind inventing it. So that's what the simple graph is meant to report. If your variable marginal cost is some fixed number, it doesn't really have to be constant, but assume it is. Uh, that's the yellow line, and demand is what it is, and people just go down at pricing at marginal cost. We will sell the quantity there, but then we'll make zero rents or profit over variable cost. Meaning that if we had to expend something to come up with a nuclear bomb or whatever it was that I'm selling, uh, we will never be able to cover it. So that's what happens if you have that view of competition, if you think the competition rather quickly, where quicklier matter, quicklier has to be interpreted in an economic quantitative sense, quickly, you know, quickly can mean a century in particular, or half of it, or even three decades. Uh, so if quickly you get there, uh, then it's clear that under condition like that, forget about innovation unless innovations also don't involve any fixed cost, and I think we agree to a different extent, but we all agree that if there is something that makes the object called innovation different from the object called make another pair of sh the same shoes uh, from an economic point of view, is that behind the innovation there is some form of fixed cost, be it in the form of the sunk cost in a plant or, 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 or some R&D, be it in the form of a minimum size. Uh, or even resources you have to waste for whatever reason, for experiments and so on, there is a fixed cost, okay? And then the practical issue is how large it is, but, but it's there. So clearly, if the world is like that, uh, forget about innovation if you don't protect the innovator. That is, if you do not protect the person or firm that has to put up the fixed cost up front. Uh, then there is the Marshallian view that, you know, that says, how does a new industry come around? Well, the new industry still has the same demand in front of it. And, and maybe it also the technology is such that the variable marginal cost is still a constant one. But the innovator or the innovators, from that point of view, doesn't really matter. So the guys or the firms, the first move and decide that making shoes that way or making that kind of shirt or making that kind of cell phone is a good idea, come in and set up some productive capacity. And that productive capacity at the start, for a variety of reasons, uh, which are mostly to do with uncertainty, uh, the cost of setting up capacity that is not costless and so on, is limited with respect to demand experimentation and so on. And so at the very first period of, at which you observe entry, you also observe rent. Because given the capacity, which is my, uh, my green vertical line, um, the innovators sell at the market price under competition at a price which is substantially above the marginal variable cost, and that allows for rents. And these are the rents in the Marshallian story that, in fact, induce further entry and imitation. We all know the story. And so you reach a long-run equilibrium only over time, sometimes with shakeouts and excess capacity, sometimes with not. Uh, and, and in the long run, 
innovators and also the first imitators earn their rents, and their rents tend to cover the fixed cost they have to afford. So in this story, uh, the innovation comes around because there is competition, doesn't need anything legal, any form of legal protection to back it. And if you now turn this into a dynamic one, the motivation for the next guy to actually innovate is exactly the fact that imitation by the other kind of dissipate the rents. And so given that there is a motive to keep going after rents, if you think you have some fact or some ability uh, in yourself that can produce them, this, the faster, in some sense, you dissipate rent in a model of this type, the faster you're going to see someone one of the guys trying in this industry and someone making a move and say, okay, I'm going to try it that way, right? And, and that's the new innovation. So it's so exactly the opposite predic prediction, right? Because the, the, the everything else given, the speed at which rents get dissipated in a world like that is determined by, by, by the degree of free entry. All right. So these two words that I call Bertrand and Marshall have very opposite predictions. So the first thing we do in the paper is to look at a kind of a case studies prediction. They're very stark, right? So by the way, people tend to attribute the Bertrand story uh, better, its implication for innovation to Schumpeter. So it's often called the Schumpeterian view. I, being a bit of a, of a, of a obsessed uh, reader of uh, uh, history of economic thought, I have a bit of a problem with that, because there's a pro they should add Schumpeter number two, the one that gone to Harvard. In the sense that Schuppera number one, which is the good one, the one that wrote the theory of economic development where he was still um, uh, eating uh, chocolate cake in, 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 in Vienna, had a very different view of the thing. But the one of capitalist, socialism, and, uh, and democracy certainly have that view. In fact, he has a very extreme view that goes way past Bertrand. His view is a guy obsessed with socialism and thinking that actually central planning and all that is the way to go. So he wants to have his cake and eaten too in uh, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, that, let's not forget, was published in 1942. And as this view that we can save capitalism and freedom and, f and, and private property only if, in some sense, we allow only a lucky few to have it. And those are the guys running the big corporations because they will have the time and the deep pocket to plan in the long run for the R&D, to, to, to build it up, to really do the big innovations. And so, yeah, it's, it's a cost to have these monopolists around, but so be it. Um, they are the only way we can get uh, we can get our 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 good innovation coming around. So the usual story you hear very often that we do pay a price in terms of st static inefficiency because we lose competition and the uh, efficient allocation resources. The welfare theorem suggests should bring about, but we get all these dynamic gains due to the innovation. And so the pr the prediction there is that we should observe most big innovation coming from monopolists and big guys and big guys with patents, okay? Whereas the opposite view is held by the Marshallian view that says, well, innovators that build up new industry are a mixed bunch. Uh, they're seldom one, you know, some super, superman that, invent, that figures everything out. Uh, they're typically uh, quite a few entrepreneurs or people with similar idea. There is often simultaneous innovation. And, uh, and they just come in in flocks and imitating and, and copying each other and then innovating for a while until eventually the industry grows and stabilizes. And only later on, you observe the concentration. So that's two very different predictions. Another prediction is that in the, in the Schumpeterian Bertrand story, progress comes around because Old monopolists get 
tired of innovating, kind of don't do it. And so it is the new guys that come in and jump ahead of them and with the new innovation motivated by the, 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 the desire to, 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 to collect the monopoly rent. So the prediction is that when we look at industries, uh, what we should observe is a continual leapfrogging of the people behind. And now here, the quantitative issue becomes important. It's just how often is often. That is, in this process, which is the one that is supposed to move us from technology J to J plus one, J plus two in this you know, uh, progressive upward movement, how often do we go from J to J plus one? The, the, the theory is a bit uh, silent on that. It just predicts that it should happen. And so it's important when doing quantitative analysis, try to use common sense and decide what often means. Um, the Marshallian view, there is no such a, a neat thing of new monopolists overtaking the old one. It's, to the extent that there is free entry, some, some guys collapse and those that stay in, they, they win some, they lose some. So sometimes you are the innovator, sometimes you are the imitator. Uh, the competition is multidimensional. It's not very easy to say that a good is strictly better than another. So you innovate on some dimension, the other innovates in other, then you imitate each other reciprocally. And what I observe is a kind of horizontal uh, competition. Uh, one part, um, I, I'll, I'll, and I just summarize here because I don't think, uh, actually, I don't have a watch with me, erroneously. Uh, uh, so I have 10 minutes to go? Good, so I better get myself. Uh, well, let me make the blunt claim. Our view is um, historical case studies evidence suggests that the Bertrand Schumpeterian view, both from point one and two, is systematically falsified. In fact, there is an exercise as a take home research pro that I give every year to my very smart WashU undergrad since I moved there five years ago. I teach an intellectual property class. Typically, I have about eight, nine research groups that they work for the whole semester, and the task is always the same, which is to find in actual history a, 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 an industry, the development of a new industry that satisfies one and two, according to Bertrand. And so far, uh, the outcome has been zero out of uh, about 40 different reports. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to learn that there is something I missed, uh, that, that we have missed somewhere. So in recent years, uh, people have come around with a kind of middle-of-the-road solution to this. I think in front of the evidence that certainly strong monopoly power doesn't seem to produce innovation at all, in fact. And so the view is, well, that as in all things since Aristotle uh, uh, taught us, uh, the, the, the right thing is in the middle between these two extreme positions. And so that if you look at data, so this is a graph you get if you take a panel of about 350 UK firms. This is what Guillaume Blandel and others did. And you look at their patterning activity in the US since the 1970s. And then you, mo you rank this, uh, these firms by the, uh, some measure of competition, in fact, by some inverse measure of competition. Here it's the inverse of the inverse. So as you go from zero to one, competition increase, which are various measure rate of return on capital and profitability. Uh, whereas on the vertical axis, there is um, uh, the number of citation-weighted patents. You could also use the number of patents. It really doesn't make a different difference. So you want to use the vertical variable as a measure of innovation, the horizontal variable as a measure of competition, you get this nice pattern in, the, in some works in which uh, it looks like somewhere in the middle is where innovation is maximized. Now, a number of people, including uh, one of our co-authors, uh, uh, Juan Correa, have pointed out 
that this is actually an extremely weak result. There are various reasons why it's weak, but there is one that makes a lot of sense. Some are statistical, and if you want uh, technical, I think they're relevant too, but probably they're not the appropriate one to summarize you uh, here very briefly uh, in three minutes. One is very simple, which is everybody knows that in uh, September or October 1982, we introduced the, um, uh, the Court of Appeal for the Federal Circuit that replaced the regional uh, courts to, uh, to handle all patent cases. And it's, there is a very widespread literature, I think Sam also earlier on contributed with this with Lerner, that shows that that changed the jurisprudence quite a bit. The number of patents uh, requests after that went up a lot. The court systematically, I don't remember the numbers, but they're all in the order of 97%, uh, always uh, uh, ruled in favor of, uh, of the patent holders and so on and so forth. So there's clearly a structural break. And in fact, the structural break comes out in the, in the data. And once you clean for that structural break, and that is you consider separately the two subperiods, this is what you get by running the same regression. And in case you're, cu you're curious to see what the data look like, here's how the data look like. This is uh, the, the scatter plots before. Uh, the, the structural break, where there is a clear upward sloping relation, and in fact, after that is known, after the relation between measures of competition the, and patent production becomes a cloud, and has been so uh, also for the data post-1994, in fact, it's more than that, which is, in fact, the next question we ask in the paper. We say, look, which is something people have seldom asked. At the end of the day, when I talk about innovation, technological progress, and so on, I don't really care how many patents you take out or, you know, or whatever labels you get. All I care is what you deliver in terms of goodies. And there is a very reasonable way of looking at what you deliver in terms of goodies, which is uh, to see how labor productivity, capital productivity, and total factor productivity grow in your firm and industry. Uh, because at the end, that's what I want from technological change. Uh, the rest is just either an instrument or a label or, or a way of measuring it. So we've done quite a bit of this. I'm, I'm going to give you here only two graphs, trying to see what do patents, either in absolute number or in citation weighted measure, when I look at productivity. And here we have used a much bigger panel of firms uh, by merging CompuStat data with the MBR and BLS data. And here's the best. So most of the pairwise regression and control we find, you just get a cloud. This is pretty much the only specification in which we get something that is not a cloud. That is, on the horizontal axis, we have citations in that year um, by industries and fir by firms within industry. And then the vertical one, we have labor productivity growth in that year. And as you see, there is a bit of an upward sloping thing. So there is a sense in which patents capture far from, from perfectly, but a little bit of productivity growth. Now, one has to be careful here. Yes, there is an upward sloping thing, but there is a gigantic cloud of data there where there is as much variability in productivity growth with zero pattern or very few pattern as there is in the overall sample. So this is something that you have to keep in mind when you're doing uh, uh, policy exercises. This is the same data once you take away the 5% top firms observation, firms here, industry here observation. And this is what you get if you average that data over the time interval. In other words, the positive relation is driven by four sectors that I report there, 33, 41, 42, 43, and 44, which makes sense if you notice what they are, semiconductor, audio and video equipment, 
communication equipment, and computer and peripheral. So those are actually four, four digits NAA, NAICS sector for which patents have a decent and good relation with, um, with productivity. Everything else is a cloud. Uh, now, because I could not resist, if you notice down here, there is sector 3254, which has quite a bit of patents, but productivity growth way below average. And here is, uh, is our price of the day. We're uh, happy to buy beer or wine or champagne in unlimited quantity for whoever guesses without going online, all right? Without going online, turn off <laughs> Playfair and tell me what 3254 is. Uh, uh, no. 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 Huh? No. Now, these guys that make a lot of patents but have productivity growth below average. And let me insist, it is the typical example that whenever a character like me or Levine goes on a podium like this and says, oh, we can live a lot better without patents. He says, oh, come on, you're going to be crazy. How could we have uh, without patents? Pharmaceuticals. Yes, sir. That's how good, uh, how good pharmaceutical is. Okay, and, and as far as and I, I kind of rest my case there, but let me say, let me show you what we actually have done over and above that, and that's still work in progress. Uh, Juan and, uh, and and Carmen have done a lot of this, so they. So what we have done, given that patents may be a good measure of productivity growth for some sector, but they're not a good measure for most of the economy, uh, we've just gone to the productivity numbers and computed them using uh, MBR and BLS data and then merging them with CompuStat. And interestingly, if we do it there, uh, on the raw data, as you see, 9087.206, we get again the U-inverted thing. So the issue of the problem is that competition here is measured, as, as people before us have noticed, as the rate of return, as profitability. And so that's clearly endogenous. And so uh, as soon as you correct for endogeneity of the competition variable, and we correct it in a variety of ways, and they all give the same result, um, the result we, uh, we give, and, uh, and that are, I'll uh, describe a bit better than, than, than I can do here in two minutes uh, in the paper, um, are pretty much uniform. They keep giving us this very strong upper sloping uh, relation between any major competition, including imports, exposure, including advertisement, and measure productivity growth, be it TFP growth or labor productivity growth. Here is in particular, the long-run relationship, which is what you get once you average over those 20-year sector by sector. So each point there is a sector. Um, I don't have time to elaborate on this, but then it gets down to the policy. I think there are four things that we take home from, from our research and, and the literature we also consider in the paper. One is that paradoxically, and reverting somehow, if you want, something that comes back from, from the 80s, antitrust and competition policies are actually important for innovation product, uh, productivity growth. That is, one way of getting productivity growth and innovation may just be enforcing competition and imposing uh, 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 some kind of compet uh, competing field via the antitrust policy over and above whatever we do uh, with intellectual property law. Uh, the second consideration may not come straightforward from what we, I have presented here, but it's there from some of the empirical analysis in the papers that one size fits all is a bad rule. 
if you have to have patents. So from a policy point of view, if you want to keep patents, this is not particularly original. This is something that in the legal literature, in particular, lots of people have been claiming. But the evidence is more and more overwhelming. That there are a few sectors in which patents, maybe even long patents, long in the sense we have them today, may be useful. But certainly there are others in which they're not at all. And so it's time to start thinking seriously how you can enact a legislation that allow for that. Uh, currently, uh, the legal literature seems to sustain that the courts are taking care of that. And there is some evidence that the courts are taking care of that. But I tend to believe that that's too random. And I think there is evidence too random and too based on uh, completely idiosyncratic uh, uh, shocks to rely on it. The third uh, thing, and I finish here, is that what this stuff suggests is that, again, because patents are useful maybe only in a few sectors where there are really huge fixed costs respect to the size of the market, a deeper reform would be to con start considering reversing the burden of proof. That is, you don't give a patent only because it's new, original, and, 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 and whatever is the third characteristic that I forget because I'm getting nervous because I'm late. Uh, <laughs> But you know there is an economic component, pretty much similar to what we do when we regulate utilities, which is you've got to also try to, given that you want a monopoly power for me, you better convince me that you really go broke if you don't get the, the monopoly power. And then on the pharmaceutical, I just throw it there, it seems to us that, uh, that if you look at the pharmaceutical and the way patents interact with the system, they clearly do not seem to produce a lot of uh, growth of productiva, they seem to produce the protection to pay for the clinical test burden. And so maybe the way to go is to start from removing the burden of the clinical test from the pharmaceutical companies and move it somewhere else, and then instead of keeping, uh, allowing them patents. Uh, apologies for having exceeded my time. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, many apologies for the noise. I've sent several urgent emails. We'll see if it uh, pays off. The first discussion is Andy Atkinson. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to be here, and uh, I sympathize with a lot of uh, what McKelly and David and his co-authors have written. Uh, for myself, I'm getting involved in work with Ariel Burstein at UCLA, thinking about innovation policy and trying to integrate some of the microeconomic models we have into a macroeconomic framework. And so this, coming to discuss this, provoked in my mind some of the questions about, you know, I actually think there's not that much useful theory <laughs> and data available for it to guide patent policy. So I wanted to talk about some of the deficiencies and some of the questions that come to my mind. And admittedly, some of the issues I'll mention are, are just pressing from recent personal experience. Uh, I certainly agree with the sentiment expressed in the paper that the, the new growth theories uh, that are, I would say, the current standard attempts to integrate a microeconomic perspective where firms are investing in making innovations and then we look at the macroeconomic implications for growth, et cetera, that result from that, they're not really adequate as a guide for uh, policy. Uh, I would say for a number of reasons. Uh, I want to talk about something that they haven't touched on, which is a distinction between basic science and applied research. Uh, that's not really in the models. Uh, the models tend to force firms to either do something new, they'd be like the new variety models of the new growth theory, and they'd thus not give them the opportunity to copy other firms, or they force them to copy other firms. But there's not a, a model of the trade-off, should I do something new, if I've given the choice to do either one, do I copy or do I innovate? Um, and then in terms of the data, uh, I guess a lot of uh, 
theory, V. Grillicus's work, et cetera, pushes you to think of uh, innovation as an activity of accumulating some type of intangible capital. And then if you make an analogy to physical capital, uh, really the effect of policy on that accumulation is a general equilibrium question. And the new growth theories are rigged in knife edge cases to have very particular uh, general equilibrium implications. You basically do not wrestle with diminishing returns. And so I'd say um, outs once you get outside of that knife edge case in these models, uh, the models start acting a lot more like the models we're used to for analyzing the impact of policy on the accumulation of physical capital. And the reason I say that's important is that if you were to come to Martin Feldstein and say, what's the impact of uh, you know, investment tax credit on capital accumulation, he's not going to do a bunch of case studies. He's not going to do a bunch of industry studies. He's going he's to address it as a macroeconomic question. And so a lesson that I feel is coming out of work that I'm doing with Ariel is a lot of the, the work that's been done in intellectual property that focuses on the micro is not very informative about the macro because it's not shedding light on the questions is at the macroeconomic level. When do diminishing returns kick in? You know, it's the same analogies you would do with physical capital. So uh, while I like the work that's done in this paper, I'm afraid that it and most of the rest of the empirical literature is going to end up not being that useful for thinking about the effect of patent policy on accumulation and growth. Um, now, why do I talk about uh, uh, basic science and the distinction between that and, and what firms do? Part of it is from my perspective as an academic. So at UCLA right now, we have a budget crisis. One of the first things they're doing is, uh, can we get more money out of our intellectual property? You look at the national income and product accounts, and you look at who pays for R&D. Back in 1960, two-thirds of R&D was government funded. Now it's about one-third. So a lot of that is money going to universities for basic research. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. And um, uh, we're lousy at capitalizing on it. So the numbers that are being tossed around at UCLA is, we have $1.2 billion of grant-funded research a year. That's a flow. We're getting income of less than $30 million a year. And so what's happening is um, it's expensive to get a patent. It's about fifty dollars to $60,000. And universities really have no idea uh, where they should spend the fifty dollars to $60,000, because actually very few of these patents turn out to have any value. There's two universities that are an exception, University of Wisconsin and Columbia. And what's interesting about them is what they've done is form business advisory boards, which are basically alumni or businessmen who make a business decision as to which patents they'll pursue. Um, it's not obvious to me that socially that's a great idea, but it's interesting that uh, uh, they're able to make some money doing that, but it does raise the question, if it takes hiring businessmen to decide what to patent, maybe these patents don't really have any value independent of the time that these people are spending, these business people are donating to decide what they should actually patent. Um, I just wanted to use two examples that came out of uh, recent large gifts to UCLA. When we think about uh, separating, coming up with an idea at the university level and then taking that and commercializing it, we've received two large gifts in the last year. One was from a man named Meyer Luskin, a graduate of the economics department, donated $100 million. And when I heard that, I was like, what did he do? How did he earn $100 million? Well, Meyer came up with the idea of dehydrating bakery waste 
and feeding it to cows. And I, I just, this is the miracle of a market economy. You know, <laughs> no one would come up with that idea. And I'm sure when he pitched it to businessmen, they'd say, OK, you know, whatever, Meyer, go on out there, give it a whirl. Uh, and I doubt that it's really defended much by any kind of intellectual property. I would call that a, a, a rival commercialization. And then there's a man, Paul Terasaki, who was actually on the faculty, very interesting. He was actually interned during World War II in one of these Japanese internment camps, but he came back, was on the faculty, and he donated $50 million. So what did he do? He, uh, he came up with a way of tissue typing so that you could detect whether I should give this organ to that person in a transplant and not have an immune reaction. And obviously, they made a lot of money off of that. So that sounds, oh, that's a place where patents might be important. But I looked into it a little bit more, and I thought it was kind of interesting that um, UCLA, prior to 1980, the FDA would not let this technology be commercialized. So UC Paul Terzaki was producing this product. They were uh, selling it through UCLA, wasn't, didn't have a big market. Uh, uh, and then the FDA said, OK, you can take this into the private sector. And I asked myself the question, well, then why didn't somebody bid for this intellectual property? Why did Paul get to go take it himself with eight of his lab buddies and make enough money to donate $50 million to UCLA? And again, that says to me, maybe there's not so much in the knowledge itself. Somebody had to have the idea beyond just the, the, the idea that you could do the tissue typing to go out and turn it into a business. So it, it, it's, I mean, this is anecdotal evidence, but I'm, I'm interested that we do not have venture capitalists lining up to look at intellectual property at UCLA and manage that portfolio. And it may be that it's, the knowledge itself, independent of the commercialization effort, is just not that valuable. And uh, on the other hand, as an academic, you know, I'm an economist, we're weird on campus, a lot of the people doing the science are doing it for these different motivations, and an open sharing of information is really key to scientific prog progress. And then somehow, when we switch over to commercializing it, at some point, there's a boundary where you want to have uh, exclusivity or rival. So I had a third experience just this week. I went down and talked to the CFO of Oakley, which is a sunglass company. It was fun. He gave me a tour of the plant. Uh, and the first thing he said to me is, the value of our company is built on our patents. I was like, what are your patents? Some about the production of lenses and some about production of the actual sunglass frames. And I, I mean, I, I've wandered around malls and I've seen Oakley stores and I've seen Oakley ads and things like that. And I was a little skeptical. We went further. They do all their production in the headquarters in Orange County, which was interesting. They said, he said explicitly, we keep it out of Asia because they'll steal our production methods. So are they using patents or are they using secrecy? And then, I mean, I don't know if you know Oakley glasses. They give them away to Navy SEALs. The way he described it is, then the Marines do it, then the police want them, and then even the rent-a-cops want them. And, <laughs> and you know, there's clearly a huge investment in branding and marketing. And if I, if I were to press the CFO of Oakley and say, OK, let's actually break down the value of your company into what's coming from the patent, what's coming from the fact you're able he also said they had actually an anti-counterfeiting operation where they hire ex-military intelligence to go around Asia and work with local law enforcement to bust people <laughs> for you know, making fake Oakley glasses. That probably adds value. I agree with that. But you know, I, I said, if you were to do this and you know, for Oakley, I imagine you might come up with a very small portion of the values derived from the patent. 
And if you do this systematically, I, I might think you'd say of the intangible capital in the United States, I wonder if you'd get a big number that's coming actually from patents. I don't know the answer to that question. That's something that could be done. Um, okay. And, but I'm concerned that because the cultures, I would say, of, of knowledge and advancement of knowledge are so different in universities versus the commercial world. In universities, you know, scientific progress for 500 years or more has been based on openness, replicability, sharing of information. And then all of a sudden, we want to have a regime where you don't share it. Uh, I think it's interesting, where do we draw that boundary as economists and as policymakers? Now, the, in the remainder of my time, what I want to do is um, I think uh, McKelly and his co-authors have, have uh, done uh, a good job putting out models that will, a framework for saying, you know, patents might not be wonderful. And so I just want to put out another one. Uh, uh, it's, I view as complementary to it. And what I want to have in it is a choice between imitation and innovation. So what I'll do is imagine a world where there's lots of potential goods that you might introduce but we'll group them into what I'll call sectors. So there's a goods within a sector are close substitutes with each other. Across sectors, they're not. Okay. And I'm going to call innovation the act of being the first one to go into a sector, and imitation being the second, third, or fourth. Okay. And so the idea is, you know, normally in our models we think of imitation as I'm I imitate you, I produce exactly what you're producing. They're perfect substitutes, but that's an extreme. Let them be imperfect substitutes, close substitutes, but imperfect substitutes. And I just want to ask, what economic forces, in the absence of patents or with patents, would get firms to uh, imitate versus innovate, and how many goods would you end up with? Uh, I will argue in this model, there's something that uh, McKelly, they talk about in their paper of a first mover advantage, which is quite natural. And it actually might be more of a problem for antitrust policy to deal with that than it is for patent policy. So th the model is relatively straightforward. Sectors, there's a continuum of them. The idea there is once you're within a sector, you're, 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 you're going to take the overall price level, capital P is given. And you think of there being a demand for output in the sector as being a PJ, as the price in the sector, has a elasticity eta uh, of demand for the sector. So standard demand curve will come out of this. But what goes on within a sector is you'd have a finite number of goods that might be introduced with the elasticity of rho that'll be higher. Within a sector, you'll have closed substitutes. And you'll get a demand curve out of that of the price of an individual good relative to the sectoral price. Uh, that has elasticity of row. Okay, so what, what imperfect competition is economy? Once you've entered, firms choose prices. Uh, they take the strategies of other firms as given. Uh, basically, the way this demand system works is uh, the elasticity you perceive yourself as facing as a producer has to do with what your market share is in your sector. If you have the only, if you're the only firm in the sector. You think of yourself as having the high sectoral elasticity eta, and you charge a high markup. If there's lots of firms in the sector, or your market share is small, you perceive your elasticity as being close to row, and you charge a low markup. So there's a real sense in which it's not the absolute nature of standard Bertrand competition, but as you have more and more entrants, you'll drive down margins. Okay. And innovation, as I said, is the first one to go in, and you have to pay an entry cost N1. After that, you produce a constant marginal cost. Imitation, to get a notion that you learn something or there's a knowledge spillover, let's say it's cheaper to be the second one in. 
I'll call that N2. And let's assume the parameters so it's socially optimal to have innovation. So I just want to think in a very simple way, do we need patents? So in an extreme case, yes. If, there's, if it's costless to imitate, then as soon as you enter, you innovate into a sector, lots of other people will come in until there's no more profits left in that industry. And then the first firm anticipating that will say, I can't cover my fixed cost. So I need some kind of protection if I'm going to enter this industry at all. But I'm going to argue that's a very uh, fragile result in terms of parameters. Uh, I should say uh, this is the standard model of costless innovation. On the other hand, let's, uh, uh, let's make the elasticity within the sector infinite, but have an imitation cost. Then you don't need a patent. Once I'm in, the next guy is going to say, I can't cover the cost of imitating you, because we would immediately drive profits down to zero. So you're safe even once you, as an as a innovator behind that. Or alternatively, if the imitation cost is the same, what you're going to have is no one's going to imitate you. They're going to just go off and do something new themselves. So then uh, in those two cases, we don't really need patents. I would call the second case is basically the expanding varieties models that Paul Romer talks about. Um, uh, and even the Schumpeterian models have a version of, uh, of the first case where why doesn't somebody imitate exactly what you're doing? Why do they have to jump over you? Well, there's no point imitating exactly what you're doing because Bertrand competition would wipe out the profits. Um, so what do you do in the intermediate case? So that sounds like, well, we have to look at parameters. But I, I want to argue here that maybe not. This is, so this can be loose. I want to say that there's a first mover advantage that comes from, after I'm the first one in, who wants to be the second one in? Who is it most valuable to? I'm going to argue it's going to be most valuable to the firm that was the first one in. Why? Because they can coordinate on pricing of the two products. And they still have the threat that if a different firm was going to come in and competition broke out, they, could lower the, the, uh, they, they would lower the profits and, and they can discourage entry that way. So this is the point of a new firm would have to compete with an incumbent. The same firm will just want to fill up a sector. And I'll call that the first, yeah, I'll be done. That, I'll call that the first mover advantage. So uh, what you might think of is I, I'm going to conjecture the equilibrium facing a demand system like this with a positive cost of imitation is going to have a single firm producing a lot of goods within a sector, pricing them at a high markup until there's a threat of somebody trying to imitate them. And then, I mean, this goes back to does this work out in game theory models from the 1980s. But you, it's almost like a contestable markets theory. If a new firm were to come in, competition would break out, and that would exclude them. So you introduce enough products to make the threat of competition credible to discourage a second firm from coming in. So what do I have in my mind? Northwest Airlines you know, has a lockdown on the gates at the Minneapolis airport, and, and they, they auction the gates. But who's going to bid the highest for any marginal gate? It's going to be Northwest. But now it's Delta. You know, I go, I go into, I go into, uh, I go into a drugstore, and I'm bewildered by the varieties of toothpaste. But there's only two companies. I'm surprised there's two. Why is there not only one? Uh, uh, I went and bought a car this week. I noticed that the like, three Volkswagen dealerships in the area all have the same owner. Uh, Starbucks, you know, has plastered the globe with its varieties of coffee. 
and probably discouraging anybody else, any secondary entrant, from getting in because uh, they can just wipe them out with, pri with local pricing. So these is an example, so I think, what will arise naturally in the absence of, of uh, uh, intellectual property protection in a very standard framework. I mean, I think it doesn't have to be complicated. Um, what happens with a patent, a firm to lay claim to a sector now can just get a patent. It doesn't have to fill up the sector with goods. Okay? It can actually use a legal threat to keep entrants out. So what they should do is introduce only the number of goods that would maximize their profits when jointly pricing as a monopolist. And that should be a smaller number than what you would get if they also had to use that threat to deter entry by a second, uh, uh, second entrant. So I'll conjecture that um, uh, uh, you'd have more goods in each sector without patents. Now, is that necessarily a good thing? That becomes a general equilibrium effect. I, I can't answer that question independent of parameters. You might have fewer sectors, more goods in a sector. We'd have to pursue this type of framework in an empirical way to answer it. But the point I wanted to make with this is I think the line of argument that uh, McKelly and Dave and others are pursuing kind of makes sense in simple models uh, uh, and is, is uh, uh, certainly not, perhaps shouldn't be as heretical as, as, as they put it out to be. All right, well, thanks. Thank you very much. Second discussion is Sam Corum. Okay. Um, yeah, the, it was uh, what I appreciated at, at first about uh, taking on this uh, job of discussing the paper is to try and get the bottom of the logic of uh, McKelly and David's uh, theory and then go on to looking at the empirical work. So I took it as an opportunity to kind of really at least figure it out in my way. Um, and I wanted to... Um, Compare it to, you know, I was at a kind of impressionable age in graduate school when Paul Romer wrote his famous paper, and I felt it was crystal clear. So somehow McKelly and David are saying that's, you know, there's something wrong with that. So I wanted to understand what was wrong with this thing that I had already viewed as just a crystal clear articulation of how to think about technology. So in the Romer setup, I'll take that to be the standard relative, not Schumpeter, because I think Romer's probably a much clearer writer. Uh, so <laughs> production is going to be constant returns to scale in traditional rival uh, inputs. But the actions in the technology, we think that's important, driving economic growth and so on. So we, how do we think about that? Well, the, the key thing there is to realize that technology is non-rival, so two people can use it at the same time. And there's some kind of adding based on McKelly and David's uh, part that's going to come next that it's costlessly replicated. It's just kind of there. It's like a recipe that you can... Oh, pardon me. Okay. So it's just uh, something that's there. You can... Everybody can have it at once. There's no issue about replicating it. So then in that world, you need some monopoly power to um, compensate your inventors because all the, the revenue would otherwise be going to the traditional uh, rival inputs. Now... In McKelly and David's uh, theory, you start with the same uh, 
thing about production. So that's the same statement. But um, now you think much more about technology being embodied in things. And in particular, you can think it's sometimes embodied in our brains. So it's kind of part of us. We bring it into the workplace, or it's embodied in machinery. Um, and then also, the technology is slow to replicate. There's something that prevents kind of separating what's in our head from, from the technology and imagining that could be everywhere. So there's this slow replication issue. And in that case, you get these competitive rents. Uh, the, the reason is the new technology is always going to be kind of limited in supply because of the slow replication. So then the price is going to get uh, above the marginal cost, as McKelly described. And that's going to be uh, a, a compensation uh, to the inventors of the uh, new technology. OK, I wanted to have an example to kind of work through this idea. So think of uh, some pro process technology. It's going to be a, a technology for um, bending a sheet of metal uh, without weakening the metal, so a sort of breakthrough in terms of how, how we do that. Now, in Romer's world, manufacturers to just, you know, that's just an idea of how to do that. You just look at it and you say, wow, we could do that. Gets incorporated into all sorts of production processes, making productivity higher, making, we can make cheaper products, better products. Uh, and again, without intellectual property, the inventor is not going to get anything. Now, uh, in the alternative theory, same, same invention we're talking about, um, now you just don't get it unless you got somebody there to describe how to actually carry it out. So somebody's got to go to the manager and engineer and say, this is how you do it. This is how it would apply to what you do, uh, and so on. Now, the inventor is the first guy who can do that because he has it in his head to begin with. So he does it. He, he, he describes it to someone. Now, that person, the inventor, they'll realize that when I describe it to that guy, then that guy can just describe it to somebody else. Because remember, this is the world without uh, intellectual property. So um, he then says, well, now you're going to be able to describe it to somebody else. So you actually have to pay me quite a bit to. Uh, to describe it to you, because then you're going to have the uh, opportunity to describe it to somebody, to somebody else and do the same thing to them as I'm doing to you. So you get this accumulation of, of rents, and the inventor is kind of the first in line to accumulate the rents. And why are the rents? Because the, uh, this is a slow process of describing the technology. And in the process, there are going to be some manufacturers who have it, others who don't. And so the guys who have it get a extra rent from using it. But then the inventor can be kind of wily about it and get a lot of those rents for himself, thus subs uh, giving uh, an incentive to innovate. OK. So there are these stark policy implications then. And the, in the one, in the first case, you don't have to have patents, but that would be one reasonable way of thinking about uh, providing some monopoly power to the inventor. Uh, or in the Bolton and Levine case, you don't need the patent system, so you'd rather get rid of the monopoly distortion. OK. So how would you resolve this? Here's, here would be kind of my, what I would, I wish we could do more often as economists. And I, I'm going to say in the end, we're not there yet. But I think we'd like to have a model that encompasses these two views with uh, 
uh, with parameters representing this ease of replication, whether it's difficult or not. We'd want to be able to, to somehow estimate that key parameter about replicating the technology. We'd want to incorporate the current patent system, because what we see in data includes a patent system and how people use it. Then we'd want to have this estimated what model. We'd want to do a counterfactual experiment of within this model, what would happen if you removed the patent system. Then we'd want to look at the different outcomes for growth and welfare and so on. And, and then we'd say, well, what, you know, is it a good idea or not? Anyway, that, that's what would be nice to do. Um, so what's done in this paper? I mean, it, to be fair, we're, 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 we're a ways away from being able to do what I described before. Um, in this paper, instead, the idea is um, assess some empirical predictions of the standard model. And if it performs poorly on those predictions, I'm going to say dismiss. Actually, McKelly was being more balanced in his discussion. I think the paper may sound a little less balanced than that, so I used unbalanced terms as well. But he's going to they would then dismiss the implications for patent policy of this model if it can't get right certain basic uh, uh, empirical implications. Now, my view is that exercise was sort of a mixed bag. So here, here's where I come down on it. Uh, and, and there's sort of the more serious empirical work is at the bottom. But let's just start at the top. There, there's some discussion about whether big firms innovate the most. I find that kind of orthogonal to this whole thing because it's not clear. I mean, in the Romer theory, they're not big firms. They're just uh, some guy producing one good, and then um, you know it's not even an incumbent. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure why you couldn't have big firms in McKelly and David's world. So I just find that orthogonal to and to the issues, and not very clear in the data either. You can come up with little firms. You can come up with big firms who who made dramatic innovations. Um, do new innovations unseat the old ones? Again, well, that's kind of captured in the Grossman and Heldman's model very well, but in the Romer model, it's not. So again, I don't see a clear connection between the theory and this implication, and it's not all that clear in the data either. Um, now, the third one I was a useful reminder for me. I've sort of we worked a lot in this area early in my career and not so much recently, and it kind of reminded me why I maybe drifted away into other areas. Um, <laughs> is productivity growth associated with patents? It is sort of an embarrassingly weak relationship. Um, you know, I worked on papers where we really wanted to find a strong relationship, and we didn't. I mean, we, you could get significant coefficients. I'm sure that's true. But I think McKelly's picture kind of tells the story. It's a scatter plot with a huge amount of noise and maybe a couple data points uh, determining the coefficient. So we got to be humble about that, and I'll talk a little more about that later. Uh, is productivity growth associated with competition? I just don't, I don't like this measuring competition unless I know a lot more about what a model implies for the thing we observe to be measured competition. I, I, it's fine. I just don't have anything to say about it because I, I feel like the measurement issues there are, are, are really big. But let me go back to the number three point because I think that's interesting and is worth repeating. So I, I do view it as a weakness of the standard model that um, 
you know, we can't say more about where productivity growth comes from. Uh, it's not just patents. Um, it, it holds for R&T as well. And that's even maybe more surprising, because then, then you're really measuring something where people are putting down money. Uh, you see that very, if you read Zvig Grilichus' presidential address, it's just a very honest, he wanted to find a strong relationship between R&D and productivity, invested a good chunk of his life in thinking about that issue. And in that presidential address, he shows the same scatter plot as McKelly did, except it has R&D on the axis rather than patents. And it shows that plot is just driven by uh, uh, computers. And if you took that out, there's not much there. And just looking at it, it looks like McKelly's plot. Um, and I, I apologize to the co-authors. I'm calling it McKelly's. But, uh, uh, Anyway, so that's a challenge. And I think Grillicus's uh, idea was it's got to just be that we don't do well in measuring productivity. But we don't know that. But it's certainly a tricky thing to measure. And I do kind of worry about, I, I, I think that earlier work needs to be mentioned. OK. Alternative, so I've been kind of hard on the empirical approaches here. So let me try and be more constructive. Um, because uh, I don't feel the empirical evidence here sways us too much, although it makes us, it undermines a little bit, it makes us humble about the standard model. Maybe that's all we're, the goal here. But some other approaches I think would be useful is going a little more directly to evidence about this kind of key premise of replicating the technology, which is, I think, the hardest thing to get your hands around in their theory. Now, perhaps they don't want to commit themselves too much to that particular way of thinking about it. But I think that's what's novel about the theory. I think it would be good to provide more direct evidence about that difficulty of replicating technology. Maybe more case studies of recent, recent episodes. Not so much, I don't want to hear so much about the steam engine, but sort of more recent stuff. And uh, maybe some macro evidence. So let me go through each of these. Jeff, how am I? Five minutes? Is that me? Okay. Very good. So the key premise part, difficulty of replicating the technology. Um, I mean, it's just a fact that new technology, even when it seems far superior, takes forever to spread. I mean, even Walmart, I was just looking at Tom Holmes's uh, paper about the spread of Walmart. In fact, he has a YouTube video of the spread of the stores over time. You know, it took a long time for them to just be the dominant. They, uh, retailer in the United States. So that's just a fact that these new, new things that we all say are so great, but why didn't we just do them immediately? So what are we going to learn from, what do we infer from that fact? So I'm buying into their fact there. They emphasize this in their paper as well. One interpretation is that, is their interpretation, I would say, that the technology is slowly being replicated and it's generating rents to the inventor along, along the way. Partly as a consequence of that slow replication, I guess the idea taken literally in the Walmart case would be Walmart was getting, there was a demand for Walmart. It was eventually going to be spreading out, but when there were fewer stores, they could charge higher prices. I mean, that's a little unfair to them because they're spreading over geography, so it's not like we're going to drive from California to Arkansas to shop at a Walmart, but 
But I think that's the kind of logic that they're uh, pushing. The other interpretation, I think, is that uh, users who could be consumers or they could be manufacturers, if I'm talking about that process technology, are just really resistant to new things and new technologies. And that's just a headache for the inventor. He spends his life trying to get somebody to just try it. And, and people won't do it. And it takes a long time. And that diminishes the poor guy's profit. So on the one hand, it's giving him these rents. In the other hand, it's kind of taking them away by making them so far in the future that they're discounted towards zero. And I, I think we got to decide how we're going to interpret this fact about the slow diffusion. OK, Se second point, case studies. I did my own case study uh, interviewing an inventor. Uh, his name's Max uh, W. Durney. Uh, he has many patents in woodworking equipment and metal fabrication. Uh, his early uh, patents, uh, just a few of them, were about something called a pocket machine, which is a very simple idea. It's used if you go to uh, a kitchen store and see how kitchen cabinets are put together. You'll probably see this process in use. It's a way of drilling a hole so that you can make a, if you have a board like that, you can put a screw in edgewise and it catches. And it's a real good way to attach uh, pieces of wood together. It's just used all over the place, but the machine's not. Machine's kind of simple. It doesn't cost very much, so he never really made much money off it. But a, a steady flow of income, but not not uh, not enough to support a living. Um, okay, second one, metal folding. Well, that my example from before was inspired by this. He has a whole bunch of patents about this. This is kind of his big idea. Uh, he created a firm called Industrial Origami. He got lots of venture capital money for it from Silicon Valley. Uh, it's a kind of general purpose technology about, and literally, about how to bend metal without weakening it. And, and the basic idea is to make lots of kind of precision cuts so that the metal is sort of relieved when you bend it, rather than having to get squished or stretched. Um, so this has all sorts of potential. Uh, for use in transportation, in housing, in uh, military, and so on. Uh, the, his point was the patents were really crucial for attracting financing. Uh, they're sort of, but he's still uh, waiting for those resistant manufacturers to adopt it. I mean, this is a decades-long project. Uh, you, it's, you know, the, the whole business is about working with different manufacturers, trying to get them to a, to adopt this, and it's just hard work. And he kept repeating this resistance to change. Uh, uh, it's kind of like, uh, sounded like Obama or something, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, I guess that it's just the thing you face. And you need the financing to live during this period when nobody's, uh, you haven't really made any money off the thing. Uh, anyway, uh, to inside, he's actually my cousin, so that's uh, <laughs> So I hear about it every Christmas holiday about how, wow, just next year I'm going to be a rich man. But, uh, uh, and then finally, I wanted to say uh, the macro evidence. Um, a lot of countries have recently strengthened their patent enforcement. And uh, sometimes they're doing it on their own as they become, uh, they develop, and they uh, sort of have an R&D sector, and they want to uh, those guys probably lobby to get some protection, and maybe the governments actually feel it's a smart idea. Other times, it's outside pressure, like uh, 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 GAD and so on. Um, 
or I guess that was particularly the Uruguay, Uruguay round. Um, so for different reasons, they're strengthening their patent protection, but I still think that with uh, 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 some, you know, uh, a lot of care, it's quite informative about then what happens, how bad was it when they did that. Um, now, to show that I'm unbiased, because I guess I'm sort of biased maybe slightly towards patent protection in the way McKelly and uh, David are biased against it, I'll mention uh, a case where I remember uh, Frederick Scherer claiming that he thought introducing drug patents in Italy a long time ago were a terrible idea. So I think sometimes these macro experiments do, do give you some data that would be very relevant, maybe even addressing Andy's issue about needing to think about it more as a general equilibrium thing. Uh, so it was a provocative paper. Thank you very much. Do you want to take questions? We have about 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, can I say two you can You can take a couple minutes. Yeah, take a couple minutes and then take questions. Okay. Which way you want to go? So we're now in the dark. Now we may want Can we to get the lights the back light on. We there we go. Well, thanks to the two discussions, if I can get the slides, they're both uh, quite crucial. And uh, so thanks. Uh, just two very quick remarks. Uh, well, I guess that part is personal. The stuff that Andy has been pointing out is one point that, uh, in particular, the fact that under Bertrand competition, this is something apparently. So it's unclear. Here, so we basically got the rege a, a, a reaction from everybody in the traditional I/O literature saying, "Oh, that's well known." And then whenever we say, "Do you have a place where that's published?" No, nobody's given us a reference. So the point is that when you write down the standard Bertrand model that people use as a sequential game, which the innovator innovates first, spends his fixed cost, and then imitators have to choose to either go in or not, you get what end is. It seems trivial once you write the game. You say, "Jesus." Obviously, even if the fixed cost of the imitator is epsilon, given that in the equilibrium where imitator, innovator innovates and imitator imitates, they're both losing money, and the imitator has to come second. If he ain't stupid, he stays out. So that model predicts you should observe local monopolies everywhere, patents or not, because whoever has a good idea innovates, and as long as Bertrand competition is the rule, People just stay out. Um, so that, to me, always casted a huge doubt on the whole underlying thing, because then the way to go is to play some Cournot with, you know, and set up capacity and stuff like that. But that, then, so maybe we should exchange. I, I, we have, I don't uh, have sites for you. No, 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 you don't have to have a site. But I mean, I think uh, that your way of doing it is actually very nice, uh, better than the one we had done. So. Uh, um, I'm um, learning something in there now to explain. But it's a puzzling thing in the theory of industrial organization that bothers me. Because whenever we write down that model exactly, we get to that conclusion. So I don't understand how they keep using the reference to that model as the opposite conclusion. And so there's got to be some other implicit model nobody ever wrote out that I would like to have it spelled explicitly. Um, reading Scherer doesn't help, I have to admit. Scherer <laughs> claims that he, he says it all. He wrote one of the nastiest uh, review of our book. That was fine. That's okay. It's fine. I mean, I have a thick skin, but uh, in which basically said anything correct, we said uh, he already wrote it in his textbook and everything else was wrong. Uh, um, <laughs> but that's okay. But we, I didn't find it in his textbook. Uh, 
um, on the on the aspect that uh, uh, Sam, well, let's not get into the various details of the argument. I think it's exactly correct what you say. If I may do a, a little bit of self-advertising, I think that's the line we, we we pushed with some of the models we wrote. And I guess that because we have this very extreme position, they're not taken very seriously. But the point that that. The trade-off is between three parameters, basically, how quickly the margin utility of the new good goes down, which tells you essentially the si it's a measure of the size of the market. It's one way of parameterizing the size of the market. How big the fixed cost is, and how big the speed at which imitator can come in and therefore increase capacity, given that. Uh, was exactly the three parameters we played. Uh, we, we have been playing around for a while. And so there is a bunch of papers by us and by others that have been, uh, been doing that. So I think that there maybe there is an ideological barrier to be broken uh, that, uh, that may lead people uh, that have better expertise with data and number that, uh, well, David and I have, but certainly Juan and, and Carmen are much better than we are, which is why we asked them for, to help us on this. Um, to start applying the data, uh, using this model to look at, into the data uh, more carefully. And I agree that those are the three uh, main, uh, um, main, main parameters. Um, one, one, one last thing, though. Um, so on the case studies, I'm not sure I, I, I would be uh, taking your point of view. I understand this is open to debate but I would not take your point of view. Now, it is true that the grossman elman agiono with romer version don't really say much about the size of the firm. But when I look at the body of IO literature around that, and in particular the policy and applied papers, definitely there is that bias in the literature. It's not only in the old Schumpeter in his book, it's there in the literature so far. So while I agree, that in the stark mathematical model, it doesn't really matter if it is large or small, big or not. Then when you look at the way people apply it, there is, uh, there is quite a bit of uh, insistence on that. And I think that uh, the evidence you have and the one you, you also mentioned correctly, that the R&D is an extremely, I was just checking the paper by Grillick, as you mentioned, <laughs> and it's exactly true. It's the same scatter plot. So I think that there is a bit. And the other thing that I honestly, I think that the case studies are relevant because it's a way of seeing if there is increasing productivity or not, is this prediction that there is the continuous leapfrogging. So I, I, it's not clear to me why in the applied I.O. literature people have not looked more carefully into that. It seems a key prediction of that class of model. When that prediction fails, then the welfare consequences are, are the opposite. right? Because you can always write those models, in fact, you can do it. Say, Agion Owit is perfect for that. right? Again, I always ignore that, but in that model, it's easy to twist parameters so that you get an equilibrium, which the monopolist, purely by increasing the price of the factor that is needed to innovate, that is the factor that the potential competitors have to purchase in order to create something that Microsoft notoriously did for a long while, right, until, uh, can essentially prevent newcomers from coming in. So that models can easily predict that once a monopolist goes far ahead enough, there is no catch up. People give up innovation and, uh, and, uh, and it just keeps being the monopolies forever. It's, 
it's an intuitively uh, intuitive argument, but you can get also that out of that model. So if in reality you get, so deciding from the data which one of the two outcome actually does realize, if the one that realizes is the one in which the incentive to get the monopolist profit is always large enough that always somebody managed to surpass you and five years later, 10 years later, uh, kick you out of the market. Or the opposite, which is what we find in case studies. I, I think it's important. Maybe I'm, I'm reading the, the, the theory wrong there, but I think that's a pretty crucial um, thing. Anyhow, thanks. So, so do you want to open it up to questions? The, the one rule I know about conferences from having done macro for a lot of years is that Bob Hall always gets to ask the first question every session. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, my my point was that um, the hot topic in patents right now is the issue of opportunistic enforcement of patents, um, and it seems to me that fits very naturally into this framework. That if the real if the real contribution comes from actually bringing the patented product to market, then allowing someone later to sit on what's called a submarine patent uh, and then enforce it only later. I mean, the classic example of this was that RIM was threatened with a complete shutdown of its business by a guy who had a patent um, and which with a dangerous probability of being enforceable that you know basically controlled the whole RIM business model, which they had laboriously built up. Um, and they paid him $600 million to go away. Uh, in spite of the help that I gave RIM. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that seems to me is just a really clear example of, the, of something that, given the principles of this paper, ought to be reined in. Um, there, are, there should be some kind of requirement for disclosure. Uh, you, should, you should waive your patent rights uh, if you wait for the, the complete commercialization and success of, of a product that's covered by a patent. Or at least they should be limited by what you could have recovered uh, at an early stage. Um, Wouldn't that be taken care of by the first to file thing that's being considered right now? But some people, for some reason, are against. No, no there's nothing about this. Is well, this is then not if it was filed, you'd, it would be part of the paper record. It wouldn't come out of nowhere, right? Oh, oh, no. Th this is to be a patent has to be filed to be issued. This is a patent that was issued. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. These are these are two different. Two, complete, two completely different subjects. Here, the, here the issue is, you know, there's a zillion patents, and there was no way that RIM could have known that this patent was going to read on their business wow. model. Um, it just came out of nowhere, uh, and uh, you know, and you know, through through some bad luck, I think, on RIM's part, uh, it, um, it 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 developed this probability. I, I guess I should mention, Michele didn't quite describe the current patent regime correctly. Unfortunately, it's still the case that patent cases are tried in district court by a judge who may know nothing about patents. It's only the appeals court that got changed. The CAFEC is, a, is just an appeals court. Now, that was a big step forward because we got specialized appeals judges. Now we need specialized courts to try patent cases. That would be a, a huge step forward. Michaela, you want to call on people? Uh, no, I think that what Bob has said is correct. Uh, yes. Point but, to someone else. But, uh, oh, sorry? Randomize. Point to no. <laughs> ah, okay. I, I, I'm the one. All right. I, I, I didn't know I was the one supposed to pick <laughs> the, the, the Steve. question. Go ahead. Uh, Jeff was doing that. I'll randomize. Um, 
in his comments, Andy did something that I found interesting and I thought a constructive way to redirect the theoretical literature, which is rather than posing some notion of imit imitation and easy entry as the alternative to a patent and copyright system, to ask what would the incumbents do instead. And so his example stressed uh, filling in the product space. There, there is a small literature on this. Um, Ken Judd has a paper, I can't remember what he finds. Um, I have a paper with Kevin Murphy and Robert Topel that looks at a very specialized example where there's entry into two-dimensional product space. We do something very different from you, but there's some of the same flavor in that the incumbent uh, monopolist will alter his product designs in a way to, to discourage entry, uh, which has the same flavor. So there is a literature on that. But more generally, there's, the, there's a whole range of things that the incumbent monopolist might do uh, if the patent copyright uh, protection was withdrawn. Um, there's the issue of trade secrets, which, which came up briefly in, in Andy's remarks. There's designing products so that they're hard to reverse engineer. And there's the centralization of R&D and, um, and production in order to help preserve trade secrets. And it strikes me that, that it might be a more constructive way to frame the, the theoretical issues as what would the monopolist uh, do to try to extract a portion of the social surplus generated by his or her innovation uh, in the absence of patents and copyrights rather than postulating this counterfactual that seems extreme and not, not relevant in many cases. Um, so I had a second comment, which is on, on the empirical side. So to, in, uh, two things. One, if you're going to use the pharmaceutical industry as your example of high, high patent, low productivity, I think you have to work a lot harder than you did in your remarks. Uh, that's an industry in which productivity growth is notori notoriously hard to measure. So uh, if I have a new uh, drug that uh, is a substitute for a surgical procedure, um, you know, how am I going to measure the productivity of that? So I didn't find that convincing. The other, the other thing about your picture, um, you know, there, were the, there were a few points in the upper right-hand uh, uh, corner of your diagram um, not all the points should be weighted equally. So in there were the computer-related industries like microprocessors. So if you, if you had an occasion to just calculate for every index in the, for every industry-level index in the producer price index, what the uh, price, uh, price rate change, the, the rate of change in prices is from 2000 to 2007. And there's about 1,200 detailed industries that the BLS looks at. It, for, for microprocessors over that period, it's a minus 43% nominal price change per year, which is the highest of any, uh, uh, any of the 1,200 industries that gets tracked. That's an industry that arguably drives uh, indirectly much of the innovation that's taken place in the economy over the last two decades. So it's not one we would just want to treat as a single data point in terms of its larger impact on the economy. Um, if you, if you don't trust the price index numbers, you can just look at uh, simple quantitative measures of innovation. Uh, you can look at simple things like a number of transistors per microprocessors. They are growing at the rate of 40, 50, 60 percent or more or per year uh, in the last decade. Uh, so, so that's an industry that I don't know, I don't think it fits any, either of the theories you described very, very well, but uh, it's certainly one uh, worth thinking about and giving some weight to. Cliff, uh, can I, yeah, so there's some confusion here. Let, let me start from the from the from the end. There is no claim whatsoever that 
uh, that's about how much weight those things have. The question we ask is very specific. And the question we ask is when people in industry-based studies use patents and patent citation as a measure of productivity, and in fact as a perfect measure of productivity, that is a one-to-one, you know, R squared of one, uh, how much are they getting out of using patent citation? And, and, and the answer is yes. Well, well the, rest, the rest is a different issue. So if I have to do an input-output analysis of the way in which productivity growth evolved in the United States over the last 25 years, obviously I have to take care of I minus A at the minus one, and in there, you know, the, 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 the microprocessor play a role, but, but they're two different questions. Um, on the pharmaceutical, yeah, absolutely, that was a cheap shot. Uh, I mean, that's why I put, a, I put a bunch of beer on that, no problem about it. Uh, <laughs> far from me. We, 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 we have done, I think, quite a bit of the homework, and, uh, and I think the evidence, even in the medical community, in fact, well, working quite a bit on that uh, with people at the WashU Medical School, um, tends to be probably worse than what labor productivity me- uh, measures. Uh, we, we can go and debate on the, on the pharmaceutical, but yes, that the mine about labor productivity was a cheap shot. On the other hand, I think the evidence about uh, the ability of the pharma industry to really innovate as patents have become more and more a dominant tool of the trade uh, has clearly gone down. I think there is unanimity uh, about this. I'm not. Finally, on the, on the first set of remarks you made, I completely agree. Um, let me actually make clear here, so uh, uh, not only David and I, but a bunch of others have been uh, uh, actually asking those questions. The reason why in brief presentation I tend to focus on the two extreme cases, it's because the one I look at is the worst, absolute worst theoretical scenario for a position that says patents may not be necessary, right? So if I take the absolute worst scenario in which the guy cannot decide, the guy here is the innovator, cannot set up capacity strategically at the beginning, cannot decide, for example, to feel, you know, you, you write down a Cournot model, that's what the guy does right away, and that solves the problem, right? Um, actually, the paper, we, we do that. Uh, you can allow for secrecy uh, investment, and so on and so forth. Those are all kind of stronger case. To the extent I want to try to suggest that there is a different way of thinking at innovation other than what we call the Schumpeterian new growth theory model, my tendency, maybe I'm wrong, but as a theorist is to write down the starkest opposite case and see if in there I get some result. So uh, maybe it's a, it's a bad advertising or marketing strategy, but, but there is a liter- there's all literature now of people that try to look at those things. If this reminds me, on the stuff Andy was saying, there is a, a bunch of guys at Carnegie, Sergei Braginsky and others, have a very nice paper based on Japanese evidence that goes exactly. And when you had that question, what's all that research worth without the entrepreneur? They have a complete data set. It's not a panel. It's all biotech Japanese industry with the history of how they got formed and so on and so forth. And it's fascinating to see in the data how essentially the invention per se and the patent percent is worth nothing. And all the matters is the outside entrepreneurs that add values and make the money. And uh, um, so. One more, Cliff. Sam's point about pursuing, identifying alternative approaches in your paper. You have the threads to do it. I just, just think you need to just sort of get one thread very clear. 
And you know, since this is a policy paper, you know, the approach I'm thinking of is, is obviously the welfare economics approach to this. And, and that sort of is developed in a, in a pretty simple way that, that I think is consistent with really what you're saying. I mean, it begins with Nordhaus in the 60s. I would think you might want to mention that book. I mean, that sort of set up the, you know, the optimal trade-off with, with patent policy and sort of indicated, you know, really where the, the measurement uh, challenge would be, but sort of said, you know, we're trading off the monopoly loss versus the, you know, counterfactual gain uh, from, from the patent. And then the subsequent empirical work of, of the decades that followed, trying to measure the, the, those trade-offs. And was it Levin and Cohen summarized that in the handbook of industrial organizations. So they have this whole chapter in the handbook about, about technology policy and patents. And to the literature up to that point, you know, it was you know, fairly negative the way you were, that, that the basic argument was, you know, if you actually look at patent policy from a cost-benefit point of view, it's really pretty tough to, to justify patents in all but a few industries. Now, admittedly, you know, that, that conclusion was based on sort of limited case studies. And then I followed that in just in a book I was writing about government failure versus market power, trying to see has anybody done any more, and updated it a bit. And actually, there hadn't been all that much, but pushed it a bit more toward the negative side and concluded, you know, maybe a handful of industries, if you actually, you know, take Nordhaus's framework seriously and then look at cost-benefit evidence on it, it's pretty tough to, to justify uh, the patent system we've got now. And if anything, you know, it might be applicable to a handful of industries at best. And I think, you know, you could just draw on that, that literature, I think, to, to parallel everything that you've done and certainly give you, you know, justification for being skeptical of it. Uh, and, and then I think, as Sam suggests, you know, where are we going to go to actually really try to make, make the case in, in terms of, kind of counterfactual evidence for whether this stuff is really doing anything that, that couldn't have been done without the market? Okay. Thank you all very much. Um, we have a break until reconvene at 3.30.